This is the KOTO Community Radio News for Friday, April 8th. I'm Matt Hoish. In today's headlines, look ahead with Telski, Telluride on the verge of approving climate action plan update, exploring the roots of jam grass, and the mountain weather forecast. The Telluride Ski and Golf Resort will be busy over the next few months. And not just with summer preparations, in the coming weeks the resort will start the replacement of Lift 9. The mountain reopened for uphill off-season traffic on Friday, but later in the month will close off all access as Lift 9 preparations begin. Patrick Latcham is Telski's vice president of sales and marketing. He explains they'll be using the whole mountain. Top of 10, we'll be using that area to kind of stage equipment. And so from there, all the way to the top of nine, it's there's going to be things cruising by. Latcham anticipates it will be busy. You know, we will have, you know, helicopter-assisted days. You know, those ones will be a little bit louder than normal. But, you know, luckily the, the acoustics from, from that area, chair nine, won't really impact too much of the town. But we will be busy. It's, um, I mean, we are bulldozing roads and trails that normally aren't bulldozed to get that access. Still, he doesn't think the Lift 9 work will have too much of an impact on summer mountain use. We're going to get a lot of this done, a lot some of the heavy lifting done during this offseason, and then we should have just kind of normal operations on the hiking this summer. There might be some days where we have to close some things when we have helicopters going overhead. We can't have anyone below on those days, so there might be some impacts there, but those will be minimal. The new lift will replace the three-person lift nine with a four-person lift that Latcham says is faster. And yeah, it's going to almost cut the the chairlift time in half, so it's going to be a quick ride up there. But they'll be doing more than just pulling out one lift and putting in another. Latcham says Telski will also be leveling out about 12 feet from the area at the top of nine. At the moment, Latcham explains there's not enough room at the top for the new, faster, bigger lift. Right now, you know, you get off a nine and then it's right, right now it's even kind of difficult when, you know, when you're taking in the views or looking around or thinking about what run you want to do, you know, imagine that with just kind of more people getting off. So this way we'll have room for the terminal and room for people as soon as they get off the lift as well. The area will still be about 10 feet above where Giuseppe's is, but on that note, Latcham also says they'll have to tear down Giuseppe's. Just due to this construction, with that leveling and everything going on, there's no way we could have kept it. We love that building. It actually used to be the original ticket office, and, and we moved it up there. But we are gonna, we have to get rid of Giuseppe's, and we're going to put um, a foundation in for a new restaurant that you know we'll eventually be able to work on. Construction will happen throughout the year. The target for the first load test on the new lift, Latcham says, is December 16th. On the bike park front, Latcham explains the resort is constructing three new trails and should have some open this summer. We're opening up Meridian, which is about 3.2 miles, uh, cross-country trail, parallel with Prospect. And some of that's been there, but we're adding a new connection to it. And then we also have a run called La Cura, and that's more of a technical downhill trail expert. And then another one, Crystal, which is about a mile-long intermediate blue downhill. The bike park will be open for the summer season on Saturday, June 18th. Finally, housing. Telski is developing affordable housing in Ilium. Some of those units, Latcham says, will be done by the end of the summer. So we are going with a modular design, uh, which allows us to really cut down on the construction time. Latcham expects people will be moving into the first batch of that new Ilium housing by this fall.
It's taken over a year, but the town of Telluride is on the cusp of approving an update to its climate action plan. The initial cap was developed in 2014. In 2020, the town's Ecology Commission recommended an update. And do one that would be more approachable and understandable to the public and do a lot more outreach. That's Karen Guglielmone, Environmental and Engineering Division Manager for the town, and staff liaison to the commission. The plan, she explains, is less of a detailed roadmap and more of an umbrella document for how the town will prepare for and respond to climate change over the coming decades. Every task under there is going to require its own work plan. Uh, It's going to unfold over time. Some things in that plan are not necessarily achievable today. One of the main aims of the plan is reducing the town's greenhouse gas emissions. Last year, town council unanimously agreed to reduce emissions in the community by 75 percent by 2030 and become carbon neutral by 2040. That's very ambitious, but we believe it's doable. To get there, the plan focuses on several areas, including buildings and energy, transport and land use, and materials and consumption. A big focus, Guglielmone explains, is beneficial electrification, increasing the number of things powered by electricity. That's directed toward essentially getting off of fossil fuels in the long run since fossil fuels create greenhouse gas emissions. And as our electric supply becomes less powered by fossil fuels and more powered by renewables, that transition can happen. Composting is another piece. The town, Guglielmone explains, is looking at working with Bruin Waste Management to explore composting opportunities in the coming years. Mm -hmm. It's always been a placeholder, but we've never been able to pull the trigger on that one. The Climate Action Plan also focuses on resiliency and adapting to climate change through measures such as incorporating climate change considerations into planning and identifying public cooling and clean air centers. As for what the town needs to look like by 2030, if it's going to reach that goal of being net zero by 2040, I would say we need half of our people in electric vehicles, including electric bikes, if they're not going to be in electric vehicles. We need people to put solar on their houses, and we need new construction to be going all electric. There's a lot more in the plan, from housing and retrofitting to electric vehicle infrastructure and urban tree management. None of these are small goals. Still, the biggest hurdle to achieving them, Guglielmone says, isn't time, or money, or complexity. It's apathy. In order to get there for the community, everyone has to pitch in. Everybody has to be motivated uh, and be looking for opportunities to lower their greenhouse gas emissions on a personal level, maybe by taking public transportation, and composting, and recycling, and just rethinking some of, of, of how we live. Beyond individual decisions, there will also be more opportunities to shape Telluride's climate action plan. The CAP, Guglielmone stresses, is adaptive. The goal isn't to have a stagnant document that can't be looked at for 30 years. And in fact, it's baked into the implementation plan that we'll be revisiting this again in five years. And every year we're looking at how we're doing, what's shifting. The aim, Guglielmone explains, is for town council to adopt the updated climate action plan at their next meeting on Tuesday, April 19th.
The aspens don't even have their leaves yet, but if you close your eyes and listen very carefully, maybe, just maybe, you can hear it. The banjos, bass, guitar, and mandolin of the 49th annual Telluride Bluegrass Festival. Okay, maybe it's a bit early for that. But for those bluegrass fanatics eager to get into the spirit a few months ahead of schedule, a new book may be helpful. Nick Hutchinson is an author, journalist, and musician who recently published High on a Mountain, an oral history of jamgrass in Colorado. KOTO spoke with Hutchinson about the book. The conversation began with a seemingly simple question. What is jamgrass? It's a, a sharing of, of cultures, if you will. Rock music, more specifically maybe jam-influenced rock music, uh, overlapping with more traditional bluegrass. Uh, and, you know, that's pretty limited. So I would also say it's an overlapping of, of other kinds of music, too. You know, you'll get world music, jazz, all kinds of things. But basically, it's other styles of music meeting bluegrass. An early example would be Newgrass Revival, although they weren't really calling themselves a jamgrass band. They were progressive bluegrass music at that point. Bands like, uh, of course, Leftover Salmon, The String Cheese Incident, Yonder Mountain String Band, Green Sky Bluegrass, the infamous String Dusters. Those are all now what we call jamgrass bands. And that's sort of what the book is about, how that came to be. How essentially did jamgrass come to be? It came to be, very interestingly, and Telluride is sort of the premise of my book almost, because the stage of uh, the, the Telluride Bluegrass Festival became a launching pad for what was to be eventually would be called Jamgrass. You had artists including John Hartford, Peter Rowan, Newgrass Revival, who literally arrived at the second Telluride Bluegrass Festival and, and sort of started the whole thing. Those bands started to push at the traditional boundaries of bluegrass and brought in all these other influences, you know, rock, jazz, world, all kinds of things. And they started to loosen up the definitions. And that was, I think, the beginning of what jam, of jamgrass. As Sam Bush put it, when we got to Telluride and we looked out on the stage, from the stage, the first time we were there, we thought to ourselves, we found our people. And what was it like for you doing the research for this book? What was just that whole experience like? Who were you really talking to to put this book together? Oh, the research was amazing. It was great. I knew so, quite a bit about it in bits and pieces from all the interview, interviewing I'd done over the years. So I wanted to pull that all together. So it was really cool for me to be able to do that. It was just fascinating. And I got to talk to some uh, really top players in the genre. And that was a, pl a very pleasant surprise that people were ready and willing to discuss it with me. I started with uh, Chris Pandolfi, who's, you know, Panda from the infamous String Dusters, and he's very into jamgrass, and he is, he wrote the foreword to the book. But I ended up getting to Sam Bush, Bela Fleck, Peter Rowan, Vince Herman, uh, Drew Emmett, Tim O'Brien, Nick Forster, the usual suspects of jamgrass. <laughs> Did anything surprise you in the process of putting this book together? Did you learn anything new? There were some insights for sure, including learning that really the music, which goes back to the old world and which came onto the, you know, came into America through the East Coast, sort of has proliferated. So it was kind of popping up and boiling up in, in, in different regions simultaneously to some degree, you know, because you would talk to some people say, well, you know, you're playing the equivalent of jamgrass in New York in 1962 or whatever, you know, or people say, well, we were doing that in Tennessee, Sam Bush was doing, you know, and uh, or some, you know, they might say, oh, no, Jerry Garcia and David Grisman were doing that out on the West Coast. So 
there were it was it was neat to note that the music had infiltrated the the country and then evolved and then sort of the the roots of jambrass progressive bluegrass were kind of boiling up in different spots somewhat simultaneously at the end of this long process putting this all together and having thought about this very hard for a long time and spoken to a lot of people about it why do you think Jamgrass is something people should even care about, should read a book about, should think about. What is the importance, do you think, of this musical form? I think it's the sound to some people. It's really attached to life. You know, it, it encompasses a lot. It encompasses joy, death, a lot of stuff that's really primal. It's very primal music. And I think it tugs, it hits people kind of in the guts. It, it's profound stuff, I think. Nick Hutchinson is an author, journalist, and musician who recently published High on a Mountain, an oral history of jamgrass in Colorado. Nick, thank you so much for coming and chatting. Thanks so much for having me, Matt. Really appreciate it. Anyone traveling on U.S. Highway 550 near the New Mexico state line over the next two weeks should expect delays. The Colorado Department of Transportation will be doing road, shoulder, and ditch work on the highway just north of the New Mexico state line. On weekdays from 9 a.m. to 5.30 p.m. from April 11th to 22nd, CDOT says motorists should expect intermittent stops of 15 to 30 minutes about two miles north of the state border. Those delays on U.S. Highway 550 near the New Mexico border are slated to start on Monday, April 11th. It's hard to imagine 130 million of anything, but that's roughly how many walleye eggs Colorado Parks and Wildlife says a crew of aquatic biologists and volunteers collected last month. In a press release, CPW explains those eggs will be fertilized and sent to hatcheries, where they're hatched and nurtured to be stocked in waters across the state. The agency also trades some of the eggs to other states in exchange for desirable game fish, otherwise unavailable in Colorado. This year, the eggs were collected from reservoirs at Lake Pueblo State Park and Cherry Creek State Park. According to CPW, the annual egg collection effort has gone on since 1988, all in the service of good fishing in the months to come. Coloradans could soon get help from the state government to replace their old diesel trucks or buy an electric bicycle. Democrats at the State House are advancing a plan to invest $124 million on programs to reduce air pollution. Sponsor Julie Gonzalez of Denver says most of the money will help low-income residents get access to cleaner forms of transportation. These e-bikes um, that we're so excited to see, for so many years, folks in my community have thought, that's something for rich people, that's not something for us. The bill also includes $25 million to help factories reduce their greenhouse gas emissions. It will soon head to the Senate floor for debate. The Colorado Senate has approved a $36 billion state budget. 
KOTO's Scott Franz has more on the final steps lawmakers must take before sending it to Governor Jared Polis. The House and Senate still need to come together and vote on hundreds of millions of dollars of proposed additions to the spending plan. The House wants more money for state patrol salaries and wolf reintroduction. Senators want to add hundreds of millions to boost teacher pay. Democrats say the budget is a responsible proposal that will lift the state out of the pandemic. Only two Republican lawmakers are voting in favor of it. Critics are blasting it as runaway government spending. A small committee will look at the amendments and craft a final version before sending it to the governor. I'm Scott Franz at the state capitol. Lori Spence has been ski patrolling at Aspen Highlands for over three decades. Last February, she took over for longtime patrol director Max Smith, who retired after 42 seasons on the job. Spence is the first woman to be director of the Aspen Highlands Ski Patrol and the second woman to be hired by Aspen Skiing Company as a patrol director at any of the four mountains. Reporter Eleanor Bennett recently spent a day on the mountain with Lori Spence and her black lab, Mika, and sent this audio postcard. This is Mika. She's an avalanche rescue dog. Yeah, this is the third dog I've owned, fourth dog I've trained here. Sometimes she gets a little whiny on the chair. She's, um, she's very excited to get up there every day. I hate to ruin her enthusiasm to keep up her drive for what she loves, but I think she's probably a little cold today. It was a little cold out this morning. I get up about 5.30 to get the day rolling. What did I do this morning since I got to work? There's a lot of little things like catching up with the assistant patrol director, Pat Harris. Um, we're looking around, we're making sure the trails are safe, we're looking to make sure the tower pads are up, the bamboo straight, safety concerns, and, Terrain needs to be closed or it should be opened. Um, oh yeah, it definitely phases us, you know, um, when there's a bad accident on the hill. And yeah, so, some of it's really hard. And we do a lot of um, checking in with people afterwards. But we have such a great medical staff and we're lucky to have that kind of response. You also show up on the accidents where you just, you try and calm people down and then it's almost kind of an art to be able to just talk to people and talk them through their pain and getting them off the hill and reassure them that you're able to help them and just make a difference at that time. Um, right now working on budgets and evaluations and everything, you know, it's harder to keep the ski and ski patrol this time of year, but um, yeah, I mean, I still love all the aspects of the job here. So we're gonna head up the chair and then um, to the top patrol and at 8.30, we'll have a meeting at Top Patrol. So we'll go left here. Just try not to let her go dashing down the hill. Hey, how are you? Have a good day. Yeah, so this is one of my favorite views around here. We'll go in this door over here. Uh, good morning, everyone. Um, let's see, a few things. So yeah, if you see people coming up the hill and stuff, walking uphill, just swing by and thank them for displaying their uphill passes. And also, if you see things on the hill like bamboo, rope, pick it up. We want to keep this place like it's your living room, like you're bringing your in-laws or your parents in. So let's tidy up the whole mountain and keep it clean. Thursday, we have the late lifts going on. 
So if you can't work late, let us know early. And then when you're doing Temerity Sweep, walk up the ridge. That's part of the sweep up there. All right, have a good day out there. We have 41 patrollers on the roster right now and five women. That's the most we've ever had since I've been here for 37 years. And um, yeah, the most in history. One or two years I was here by myself. And um, I think it's a change from years ago for sure because it's such a male dominated field. Yeah, going back to when I was hired in the fall of 85, I showed up here, my family was living here. Coming into the Aspen area, I really wanted to get on the ski patrol, and that year there were two positions open. I went out and took Mac down the wall in a toboggan. He was just surprised that I could handle the job and realizing, you know, yeah, it is more technique than strength. And so I did get the job over that other guy, which I was glad because I had the experience and stuff and there's two other women on the patrol that year and we all became pretty good friends and um, yeah so I was able to keep my job here and ski patrol while I was pregnant I have two boys they're now 25 and 23 so it's been a while I delivered both boys in the summer so I was getting a little big by end of March or April and um, once one guy asked me like how are you going to get me down in the toboggan? I'm like, I'm just going to take you. He didn't think I was really capable of doing that, um, being pregnant, but he had a good ride down, so that all turned out well for him. And then I came back the next season, and I was still nursing the kids. I'd skedaddle every day around 3 o'clock to the bathroom at our old patrol headquarters, which is now the Cloud 9 Bistro, and I'd pump in there and bring home the milk and freeze it and make sure my kids um, had breast milk all year round until they turn one. What I didn't do when I was pregnant is I didn't throw any um, explosives on the hill because I didn't want to breathe in the residue from that. So that's pretty much all I, I didn't do. And um, I patrolled when I had breast cancer too. So um, yeah, eight years ago I had breast cancer and they caught it early. So I did radiation all through the winter and um, tried to hike the bowl every day, then head down to Glenwood for radiation treatments, but that's all good too. I just keep going day to day and enjoy what I do. My boys came up here quite a bit and they were able to grow up with their mom ski patrolling in the valley and it was great. I just hope women realize, yeah, I, we could all do this job and we all bring different strengths to the position. And I feel lucky that I am in this position and um, could be a role model for women in the future. But Highlands, you know, I've watched it grow over the years, and we were kind of the underdog when I got here. Whip Jones owned it. And um, when I first started ski patrolling here, Temerity wasn't open, Ole Bowl wasn't open, and the Highland Bowl wasn't open. So I've watched the progression over the years, and it's been great being part of it and the tightness of the team. and. Yeah, we all spend a lot of time together. We know each other really well. Um, it is like family. Lots of brothers and sisters here. And um, yeah, just being outside all day. So who knew I'd be in this job for 37 years? <laughs> that was Aspen Highlands Ski Patrol Director Lori Spence talking about what it's been like to be one of the few women patrollers on the mountain for over three decades. SkiCo recently hired Cresta Butte Patrol Director Tessa Dawson as the first woman to be head of ski patrol on Aspen Mountain. Eleanor Bennett, Aspen Public Radio News.
The National Weather Service forecast for the western San Juans calls for mostly clear skies tonight with a low around freezing. Saturday, expect mostly sunny skies with a high near 50 degrees. Winds could gust as high as 30 miles per hour. Saturday night should be partly cloudy with a low around 30 degrees. Sunday calls for partly sunny skies with a high in the mid-40s and wind gusts as high as 30 miles per hour. Sunday night expect mostly cloudy skies with a 30% chance of snow showers and a low in the mid-20s. This has been the news for Friday, April 8th. Thanks for listening. If you have a story idea or a news tip, call the news team at 970-728-3206. KOTO News will be scaling back for the first two weeks of April with newscasts on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday during that time. We will start back with our full news programming on April 18th.